0: we are listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the 2015 annual Florida Bar Convention in the beautiful Boca Raton Resort and Club, which of course is in Boca Raton, Florida. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. Joining me now, I have a special guest, Mr. Ethan Wall. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So before we get started, I, you know, for those people that are not familiar, now you're a returning guest of Legal Talk Network. We had the privilege of interviewing you at the Florida Bar 2015 Winter Meeting. But uh, for those of us, uh, for those of us in the audience, that haven't heard. If you tell us a little bit
1: about yourself, where do you work, and what do you do? Sure. And what feels great is last time we were together, I was wearing this vest that I have on, but I was also wearing skinny jeans cowboy boots a plaid shirt a bolo tie and a cowboy hat because it was the wild wild tech part of the winter meeting which turned out to be not as wild as i imagined because i started the program with me stripping out of my suit to garth brooks and uh into my cowboy attire and there was no one in the room dancing with me there was no one throwing dollar bills it wasn't as wild but yes Uh, Glad to be back here. I am a social media lawyer, which sounds weird because most people are like, what the heck is social media law? And I am still trying to figure that out to this day. But I'm a social media lawyer, author, professor, consultant. Uh, I've authored four books on the effect of social media on the law. I also have a company called Social Media Law and Order, where I help attorneys and law firms use social media in their practice for marketing, ethics, and litigation training.
0: Well, I had the privilege of sitting in, at least briefly, into your uh, presentation on your seminar. Now, I'm going to read the title of it, so we're going to get through that first, but uh, you did a wonderful job waking up the judges and the practitioners in there just to give a little bit of background. It was super hot in the Camino room over there and uh, it was uh, I I, I think the air conditioning was working but the door was sufficiently open everybody was just falling asleep but you came in you put some music on you got the tempo of the room going woke everybody up. it was fantastic but before we get to that I want to read the name of the event because we need to do that it was the 2015 Federal Judicial Roundtable And the actual name of the presentation, as I understand it, was impact of social media on the law and judge administration, judicial administration. Yes. Longest title ever. Oh, there's some long ones here. It is unbelievable. It's a mouthful every time we read them, but very important area of law. And uh, that was a podcast high-five. Yes. Hashtag high-five just happened on the podcast. You bet. You bet. So, no, we are in a very loud hall here. We're at the uh, Misner uh, Center here, which is at the uh, Boca Raton Resort, and a lot of different ballrooms here. But they have a celebration going on at reception, and it's super loud in here. So uh, just got to listen carefully, I guess.
1: Yes. No, and uh, look, this is what makes the bar special. It makes it fun. We are surrounded by thousands of thousands of attorneys. And usually when you hear I'm surrounded by thousands of attorneys, you say, what am I doing here and where can I, how can I get out of here faster? But when it comes to the Florida Bar Convention, they do a fantastic job. So all surrounded by friends. That's so far one high five. Yes. And I'm one waiting high five. for number two. <laughs> um, but yes, the the federal judicial round table today was hot, not just because of the temperature, but because of all the fun that we had. And usually if the bar comes to you and says, Ethan, I want you to speak to a room full of 200 people with 65 federal judges with no air conditioning immediately after lunch. You have one of the most difficult tasks available because you got to keep these people awake and engaged. It's almost as bad as being the last speaker at the conference when you're standing between them and happy hour. But we had a fun time, as you said. We had an intro video that got people started, and there was Fat Boy Slim playing. I can see (laughs) some federal judges tapping their feet and shaking their head. And then we spent the next three hours uh, talking about how social media impacts the law and impacts them in the courtroom.
0: Well, it was great. You know, you get everybody uh, to wake up and, and, you know... You know, obviously, it's meant to be fun to get uh, get them into it, but, uh, you know, very serious things that you're talking about. You know, uh, obviously, social media has had quite an impact on law. You know, it's had uh, a huge impact on discovery. It's had a huge impact on the kind of evidence that clients are responsible for. It's had a huge impact on ethics, but let's get into it. So uh, just in general, uh, you know, according to your presentation, In your words, how has social media affected law, just in general? Social
1: media has affected everything. The same types of interactions and communications and stuff that happens in the real world now happens almost exclusively on social media. My generation, the millennials, communicate through screens. right, We share everything that happens. We talk, we text. And while some people out there say, well, that's not how I want to live, Uh, That's the reality of how life is these days. And because that's how life is, that's how the law is. And so uh, judges are typically a little bit older, a little bit more experienced, and they didn't grow up in the same generation as I did where I was used to playing on America Online um, by the time that I can walk. And so one of the challenges that the law faces is that technology advances faster than the law can adapt. And so the purpose of this program was to explain to judges, yeah, you may have heard of Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn before, but there are things like Instagram and Pinterest and Snapchat and this type of evidence and these types of issues are now coming into your courtroom. So how are you going to deal with it? Because a lot of them don't even know what it is to begin with. And if you don't know what the technology is, you don't know how to make court rulings that are appropriate for this type of technology. And so we try to keep it fun. We try to keep it light. But as you said, It's a serious topic because imagine you were in a court case and someone posted something on social media that was damaging and your attorney brought it to the judge and they didn't understand the impact of it. It can really have a negative effect on your case. And so that's what this is all about.
0: I think you raise a really good point. I think it comes down to each one of these platforms. You presented several platforms. They're distinctly very different. And you know, different settings of each one of these platforms yields different results. And you know, uh, one of the things we were talking about was expectation of privacy. I had a couple of interviews we were talking about, or maybe it was a conversation. They're all beginning to blend together now. But sure. But we, we were talking about expectations of privacy, and and in uh, some of the rulings, some of the decisions. You know, it's the expectation of privacy turns on whether or not something is protected, and so these different platforms offer different levels of privacy, and so you might put something online that you intend to keep private. And I, I think it's very important that judges understand the difference in these platforms, understand like, look, I put my privacy settings on and this means it is expected to be a private communication. It's not out there for the rest of the world to see. And so, I mean, things like that turn very important decisions with,
1: which, as you said, and I agree, affect lives in profound ways. Of course. I mean, think about it. We may have an expectation of privacy and what we do on social media and as you say if I'm protecting my tweets or if I'm making my Instagram account private it's totally different from Facebook because on Facebook you can still see some content but not others so what's happening now in the court system is people are objecting to turning over their photographs and videos and content that they hide behind privacy features because they believe that I have a reasonable expectation on privacy and what I might hide from from Lawrence, but I might allow Adriana Lenares to have, because she's my friend, and so if I've taken active steps to protect something, maybe that there is some sort of privacy rights that I should have in court, and at the end of the day, courts are flip-flopping left and right, but the fact that someone can share something with somebody, meaning if I share my private Facebook photos with you, there's absolutely nothing that stops you from sharing it with other people, from blowing it up on a billboard, from throwing it around on the internet. people's privacy rights or expectation of privacy is changes as technology changes if I ask my mom mom would you have posted baby photographs of me growing up on your Facebook page she would say of course not our private life is private but in these days we want to share millennials want to share this information so we're trying to find out from a legal perspective what really is private and what's not especially on a platform that's made to be social like social media
0: well, and that's the thing. I, I, social to who? And I think that's a big question. But uh, I want to get into another area that you're talking about. We're, we're, we're sort of skirting that issue right now. That's the administration of justice. So, I mean, a judge, I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in their shoes. And they've been on the bench a while. This uh, social media is really kind of come into its own the last, I guess, almost 10 years now. And they've been a judge longer than that. And so they're seeing this change and these issues come up. And there's so many platforms and fly-by-nights How has this affected the administration of justice? We started on it, but what are some of
1: the more profound impacts that happen? One of the biggest impacts that we talked about during our session today is the effect of social media on jurors and juries. So people don't sign up to be jurors. Um, they They are required to do so as part of their right to be a citizen in the United States, and they take upon this very important responsibility to rule on these cases. But that's where their responsibility should end. What's happening is that because of social media, people find out who these jurors are and they try to influence them. They'll reach out to them on their their Twitter account or on their Facebook account and, and try to influence a court decision from the outside by virtue of communicating with them online. And sometimes these jurors are threatened. And sometimes people are making threats to them completely outside. If you don't decide this case a different way, I'm going to do something bad to your family or I'm going to hurt you. And that's something that's having a huge impact. And the judges feel like there's very little that they can do to protect the jurors who are serving their civic duty. And so in today's discussion, the question is, how open should a courtroom be? Should we allow cameras in there? And the consensus for the most part is that, that cameras should be allowed to see some parts of judicial proceedings. But then how do you protect the juries? Because once the cat's out of the bag, once the bell is wrong, it can't be unwrung. And so that's one major issue is how do you protect witnesses? How do you protect lawyers? How do you protect a defendant who wants a right to a fair trial without it being blasted on Twitter or Snapchat or Facebook or Vine or Periscope or whatever it is that it might be? And how do you balance the public's right to access the judiciary and the judicial system and to have a fair, open, and impartial system with people's right to privacy and the negative things that can happen in trying to litigate a case fairly?
0: Well, I think you bring up a really good point here. I think this is really tough. I mean, these are really tough grounds. You get a jury on there, and they need to be in contact with their family. But you're not just in contact with your family when you have your phone. You're in contact with the world. And so, you know, how do you keep the jury pool from being polluted by media influence and bias into this decision? And, And I know this comes up in court. So, I mean... What what are the discussions going on behind the scenes here? I mean, are judges saying that, are judges saying that, uh, are judges saying that uh, that's a high five, high five. number two. Number two. High five since number he, two. Since the interview began, it's high five number two. So anyway, but back to my question. I mean, what do you do? Do, you, do judges have to confiscate mobile devices, cell phones, when somebody gets called up for jury duty? You know I mean, but that's the direction we're going. against So how are you going to stop it? Or are we just going to have to plain change the rules? Right.
1: Well, to answer your question directly, they're not collecting cell phones. Yet, But what the judges do is give something called a jury instruction, which is, obviously, I can't shackle your hands when you're outside of the courtroom, but you shouldn't research the case outside the evidence that you should consider, and you especially shouldn't be looking and searching on your social media accounts for this information. You probably shouldn't be communicating on social media while you are on the jury. And so that's how judges are able to handle it, and there are civil and criminal Contempt charges that a juror could be charged with if they violate those rules. Because let's face it, let's put yourself back into that courtroom and say you want to have a fair trial, and guess how much money you probably spent on your lawyers? Probably a lot of money. And to have a mistrial occur by virtue of a juror searching for something or communicating with somebody on social media hurts. It hurts your pocket, it hurts the judicial system, wasted the judge's time, wasted the bailiff's time, wasted everybody's time. So it is a serious issue. What we're really looking at and what you're talking about here is at what point does social media and cameras and access to the courtroom make the justice system less of a legal system and more of reality TV? People want public consumption. People found the Casey Anthony trial, for example, which is something we discussed during our program, such made-for-TV type content because you had a juicy murder and you had an innocent child gone, you had an attractive defendant who had sexually scat pictures and there was issues of sex and there was issue of murder and people want to see this stuff and once you add social media and cameras into the mix it's just like the tv shows you watch on hbo how do you get away with murder law and order all this stuff is where it kind of blends together and so we need to adapt with the times we need to embrace technology and use it in a way in the law and in the administration of justice that makes sense, but we also need to be careful to preserve what's most important about the legal system itself.
0: Lawyer responsibilities. So uh, this is something that was also part of your discussion was what are lawyer responsibilities in this changing world. And so uh, why don't you share with us some of the uh, points you brought forth in your presentation.
1: Well one of the issues especially in terms of cameras in the courtroom where judges know they're on tv and all of a sudden their trial turns into an infomercial or a commercial and so they start playing to the cameras and so that's one particular issue but but on a broader level social media really is impacting attorneys responsibilities meaning even if an attorney let's say that they are a senior partner They're 60 years old. They've been practicing for 30 years. They're probably not going to be on Twitter and Snapchat. But do they have a responsibility to understand what these technologies are and investigate witnesses and opposing parties and and search their social media accounts? And if they don't, does that attorney violate their ethical responsibilities and their duties to their clients to litigate the case in a way that's competent and that's in their client's best interest? And, And on the other hand, Attorneys want to get information on social media, and those who do use it, do they run the risk of breaking rules when they send a friend request to an opposing party? Or maybe they say, I'm going to get my attractive paralegal, or I'm going to get someone else to send a friend request because, let's face it, the other party is smart, they're not going to accept my request, but they might accept someone else, and does that violate rules for trickery and deception? and Are they misleading people? So. We, again, find ourselves in a situation in terms of attorney's responsibilities where our rules were drafted many years ago before these technologies existed, and do we have to draft new rules, or how do we apply old rules to these new technologies? And that's a very difficult thing to do, and that's one of the things I enjoy spending my time doing is training attorneys, training judges, training law firms on how do you you practice law in 2015 where all this stuff exists.
0: So before we started our uh, interview, you were telling me that you had the opportunity to have a discussion with somebody very important. So let's, uh, let's get into that, I think the audience will find this very interesting. Thank you.
1: Well, I had the pleasure of interviewing former Chief Justice of the Ninth Judicial Circuit, which is in Orlando, whose name is former Judge Belvin Perry, who presided over the Casey Anthony trial. So. Imagine sitting in a room with 200 people in there, 65 of them federal judges, everyone in there, probably smarter than I am. No, definitely smarter than I am. And we're having like two chairs on stage. I felt like I was David Letterman. Or like the Montel Williams show, having kind of a sit-down interview with someone who is a legal celebrity and asking him his personal feelings and his experiences with running a courtroom in one of the most high-profile cases probably since the O.J. Simpson trial in terms of television, especially here in Florida, uh, how he was able to manage the use of cameras and technology in the courtroom and what effect it had on the uh, defendant, the juries, and himself as a judge and what it does when he's now thrust into the spotlight where everyone is questioning you know, his decisions and They've made up their minds that Casey Anthony might be guilty, and if they don't find judges and find him guilty or makes a ruling that's going to hurt that, you know, it affects his life outside of it. So I asked him, What was the impact that this case had on your life? And he said, First, Ethan, during the trial, I didn't go to Publix. I couldn't go to Publix, I couldn't leave my house. I had four to five security officers on me but at all time. for
0: the benefit of our audience, Publix is a grocery store chain in Florida. I think it's elsewhere too, but uh, a lot of people out West are not gonna know what that
1: is. Yes, hello people out West. When you come visit us in Florida, you have to have a Publix sub because they're absolutely fantastic, but yes. Why couldn't he go to Publix uh, unattended? Because as the case was, was happening, The news was recording it live and they were having commentary on it and they're talking about is he making the wrong decision? Is he making the right decision? He was under a spotlight just as much as the attorneys and the opposing party because at the end of the day, he was making rulings in this case that had a really, really critical and impactful mark on how this case was going to be resolved and decided by a jury. Folks have strong feelings about these things. They see certain facts and say, yeah, she's absolutely guilty, or no, he's not. And when they're able to watch the trial happen day by day and voice their opinions online and be able to access this person by virtue of the internet and finding the judge's email, the judge's phone number, he was under a microscope. And so he had to be incredibly careful about what happened outside of the courtroom. And even to this day... When he meets somebody, he doesn't know, is this person nice? Is this person meaning to harm me? And so it has really affected his life in a very big way. And that's something that we don't think about when we talk about what happens during a trial. We rarely think about what effect this has on a judge. And so so it's eye-opening for a lot, a lot, a lot of people. I think you told me earlier that he he received death threats. That's right. Wow. That's right. He said that there were—he's never met so many uh, crazies— in his entire life, and I said that reminded me of my experience with online dating. Oh, jeez! <laughs> you no, know, he took it one step further and said that he received a phone call from someone who, you know, wanted to very graphically, um, you know, slit his chest. Oh my God! And just imagine—he's doing a job. He has a responsibility. There are people that help make the world go around, that do jobs that are just unpleasurable to some of us. Like every time that you get a parking ticket and you see someone out there and you're like, oh my gosh, I hate this person, but they're really just serving their function. They're serving their responsibility. They're doing their job. And this judge didn't volunteer to take the case. This is his responsibility. And the fact that there are cameras in the courtroom and the fact that there is technology that's out there is just a part of what he does. So the fact that people are coming to him and giving him death threats and affecting his life really is a big deal because unlike maybe athletes who live in the spotlight, judges don't sign up for this. It's not part of their responsibility. It's not part of their function. So it was really incredible to see how far people will take this, especially when they're not connected to this case at all. So what
0: you're the presenter and you're there teaching everybody, but you know, with, uh, with uh, Judge Perry coming on and, and sharing part of his life and the results of being part of
1: one of these highly publicized cases. What did you learn from him? Wow. I learned that actions can have such a larger impact than we initially see. Okay, what meaning, kind of... what Meaning, meaning you know in every day's life there's a there's like a phrase like a a butterfly flapping its wings which seems insignificant can set forth like a number of changes that you don't expect so when i sat down for this interview i said oh this is a wonderful opportunity to get to know somebody and find out what goes through the mind of someone who is managing a courtroom and managing a judicial process with all this technology that's available and i was curious to get his opinions on the effect on the defendant and the witnesses and the jurors what i didn't think is how this entire scenario affected another human being, another lawyer, because Judge Perry is a lawyer, you know, who then became a judge, and now he practices law again. And the fact that he's got to potentially look twice everywhere he goes, and when I Googled his name, there were, like, dozens of memes that people would create, and then, like, blogs and commentary about him as the judge. And so I said, you know, how do you deal with this stuff? And he said, Ethan... Just like I tell the jurors, don't look at social media, don't look at blogs. I had to stop doing it myself, because just imagine all the things that people might be saying about you, and how that might affect you know who you are as a person. And so it just helped to underscore for me that you know even if someone's making some sort of innocuous comment online, or someone's like you know venting their frustration or saying something on social media, it really can have a huge impact, and it really makes us need to think twice about what are the consequences of our actions even ones that we seem insignificant we don't think that we're hurting somebody really could and that's something that I think a lesson we can all take away of you know thinking twice or three times before we we post something on social media or online because we don't know what effect that might have on somebody else It sounds like
0: uh, you maybe learned from him that sometimes words do turn into sticks and stones. So, no, it's been a pleasure having you on the air with us, and I want to thank you for for sharing your insights and sharing your presentation. I look forward to our interview tomorrow. Yes. And uh, so if our listeners wanted to reach out and learn a little bit more about what you talked about today, how can they find you?
1: They could probably find me on Facebook, but you can find me at socialmedialawandorder.com, socialmedialawandorder.com. It's probably the longest domain name you've ever heard, but you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Google Plus and Pinterest and pretty much any social media site that's out there, but you're not going to find me on Snapchat. So socialmedialawandorder.com. You can learn all about the effect of Facebook, Twitter on the law. There's books, there's blogs, there's a whole bunch of selfies of me. So you're probably like two out of the three. (laughs)
0: Okay. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening.